Good morning, everyone. How are we this morning? A little bit different than last week, isn't it? <laughs> it's warm and sunny. Fantastic. Uh, we are in the book of Judges. In particular, we are in Judges chapter 5. And uh, at the very beginning of this, let me just um, say this. Judges chapter 5 and chapter 6 really are one connected event. And we're not going to have an opportunity to go through both chapter 5 and chapter 6 in one sitting. Uh, so some of this morning is going to feel a little bit maybe unanswered until we get to chapter 6. Now, I kind of did this on purpose because that means if you're here today, really to get the fullness of the message today, you're going to have to be here next week as well. Um, so it's kind of like a part one and part two. Uh, they do work together, um, but we're, we're going to approach chapter five with an understanding that we're going to also have to talk about chapter six next week, because it's going to fill in a lot of those unanswered questions. But chapter five is still an amazing chapter. Um, every chapter is an amazing chapter in the book of Judges, and it really reinforces that idea of the great theme of the book of Judges, where Israel becomes a little bit um, compromised. Not a little bit, they become amazingly compromised after the first generation passes away and that younger generation does not own their Christian faith for themselves. When they begin to compromise with culture that's around them, with the people that are around them, uh, it becomes devastating to their society. And that is a repeating theme throughout the book of Judges. And Solomon touched on that major theme in the book of Proverbs in chapter 1 when he said, complacency of fools will destroy them. When a person becomes complacent, whether it's in their own life, in their relationships, at work, at school, and especially with their faith, when they become complacent and simply rest on the things that used to be, when they trust in the things that once were, when they look to the past saying, I used to do that, therefore I'm fine today, that complacency sets in, and Solomon says it is a foolish person that becomes complacent in their lives. And he's talking about in general terms, but specifically we can say, when you become complacent in your spiritual life and say, well, you know what, I used to pray, so that covers me. I used to tithe, so that covers me. I used to volunteer and serve, so that covers me. I used to read God's Word and meditate upon it, so it covers me. I used to. That phrasing, I used to, is a sign of complacency. And that should scare us in a healthy way into acting out our faith today. Today. This moment. Today, not in the past. So we're going to pick up in Judges. Oh, I said Judges 4 and 5. 5 and 6. It's Judges 4 and 5. I'm already ahead of, ahead of myself for next week. It's Judges 4 we're looking at this morning. Uh, starting in verse, uh, the first three verses kind of gives us, um, well, it gives us the same thing that's been happening in the other chapters, a sinful pattern. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, it says in verse 1, now that Ehud was dead. Remember Ehud? Ehud was the guy that did what? Stabbed the, the big king in the belly, and the belly covered the sword, and he went away and raised up an army, and they overtook uh, the foreign forces that were living in Jericho. So Ehud, once Ehud was dead, they did evil in the eyes of God. 
Verse 2, So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of the Canaanites, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of the army, was based in Hashrith Haggiism, or Haggium, uh, because he had 900 chariots filled with iron, or fitted with iron, and he cruelly upset, uh, oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cry, cried out to the Lord for help. So for over 20 years after their military leader had died, Israel, God sold them into slavery because they did evil in his eyes. Now, geographically speaking, if you remember Calvary kind of being superimposed on the map of Israel, Calvary being Jerusalem, this area of town is the far north side where Coles and Buffalo Wild Wings and that intersection is that they just redid uh, way north of us on 25. So it's, it's quite a distance. It's like the outstretched area of Israel, so the very far reaches of town. So it's quite a ways away from Jericho, where everything was happening last week in chapter 3. So this is all happening there, and this land is kind of unique in Israel. It's very flat, no mountains at all, and there's a lot of dry creek beds in that area. In fact, if you're riding on some of, or driving on some of those roads out in that area, I've noticed that, um, I've noticed that here in Pueblo, we don't have um, wadi or gutter systems. Very few gutter systems. Instead, what they do is they do a reverse um, uh, traffic bump. You know, the road goes like this, and then it just dips and then comes, and all the water is supposed to go down there. Instead of putting in a drain pipe, they just lower the street and then uh, continue on with the street. Anyone else notice that? Uh, the reverse speed bumps, because you've got to go slow when you go, because you never know uh, what's there. But I noticed on several of the roads, there's these um, markers on the side of the road that says one, two, three, four, five. And I'm assuming that that's for water level. So you know that if the road is washed out and it's at six, your car's not going to make it through. If it's at one, gun it, go for it type of thing. Uh, but this area of Israel that, these, that this oppressor, this king is in and his commander is in a very flat area with lots of dried creek beds. Okay, now that becomes super important later on in the story, but also super important next week when we look at chapter 5 of Judges. So the setup is Israel did evil, their leader is gone, and God said, in order to get your attention, I'm going to make life uncomfortable. And for 20 years, he made life uncomfortable on purpose. He made their lives difficult to the point that they were oppressed and sold into slavery. And as typical with the great theme of Judges, when it starts getting rough and tough, the Israelites all of a sudden remember, remember mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, they used to tell us about this God who would take care of everything, and that's why we're living in this land. And so they cry out to him for help. That's the setting of the stage. Then in verse 4 through 10 of chapter 4 of Judges, God raises up a prophet, and she delivers a message. Verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lebdoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Now that would be kind of just a little bit north of us, not even towards uh, the zoo area. So that's, that's where Ephraim was, that little area. 
And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So her whole purpose in ruling Israel at the time was to help them adjudicate differences. If so-and-so and so-and-so were having problems, they'd come to her and she would give them God's answer for them. So she was leading Israel sort of as a judge, as a judge. And so in verse 6 it says, She sent for Barak, son of Abdon, from Kedesh of Naphtali, and said to him, basically, all we have to do to remember is that this guy was living sort of in the Eagle Ridge area, and Deborah sent for him. And he's of a, a tremendously important tribe that was trying to hold off these invaders, uh, Sisera and the King Jabin, uh, but been completely unsuccessful. But she sends for him and says to him in verse 6, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor was the only mountain in that entire area, the only place that had high ground. And so she's pretty clear that she's not a military leader, but she hears from God, God is commanding Barak to go and take military lead and go there with a whole bunch of men from the other tribes. His response in verse 7, I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hand. So that's still Deborah talking there. Now that Kishon River is super important because the Kishon River right now at that moment would have been totally dry, a totally dry riverbed. Verse 8, Barak, Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I won't go. Probably not one of those guys who is going to win the, the Medal of Honor for bravery. Uh, he, he understood exactly what she said. She had a great reputation of being God's spokesman to the people. But he didn't have really confidence in the end. He didn't. He didn't believe her, maybe. Uh, he certainly probably was afraid. I mean, this guy, Jabin, had been ruling as king for 20 years of his life in a really rough and tumble area. He had 900 iron-fitted chariots, which means nothing to us, but imagine 900 tanks were our enemy's tanks. That's insurmountable to us who fight on not even horseback, but with farm implements, with an ox goad, an ox poker from last chapter. They outnumbered us and they out-equipped um, us at every single stage. I'm not going to go if you don't go. Well, she says in verse 9, certainly I'll go with you. We've got an amazing plan, Deborah says. Uh, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went out with Barak to Kedesh, where Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, who were tribes, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. So that's the whole scenario, the whole game plan, the entire plan of the army is to draw Jabin, especially Sisera, the commander of his army, up into this dry creek bed as well as up into the mountains, the only mountainous area in the land. 
But Barak's faith was pretty small. He needed the reassurance of Deborah that God was going to be with him. And if you're going to give me this plan, then you're going to come with me and do it. That was his idea. So he's all for volunteering as long as the person who asked him to volunteer is also the one doing it. At first reading, until you get to the end of the story in chapter 4, you might think Deborah's the one who's going to get the honor here. But Deborah's not the woman she's talking about who's going to be getting the honor. That's someone else who's going to be later on in chapter 4. But Barak knows it's going to be a tough fight. He knows that there's an incredibly good game plan and strategy involved, but he's not extremely confident. Because if he was extremely confident, he'd be the one that would just be going forward and saying, we got this. If God says yes, then it's yes. And sometimes we fall into that same snare of wanting more than just God's word. I want more than God's word. In fact, I want a miracle. I want it clear that everyone else is in this together. Because if everyone else isn't in this, then I'm not going to stick my neck out and maybe be the only one. That idea of there's safety in numbers. We are always safe when we are with God, regardless if anyone else is with us. If we're with God, if we're following God's path, then we are safe. We are protected. We have an amazing hand of comfort surrounding us if we're with God. If it's us and God and no one else, we are still, as I always say, in the majority. When we stand with God, even if we stand alone, we're in the majority with God. And Barak had not learned that lesson. He wanted the comfort of numbers. He wanted the reassurance that if this really is God, then you need to come with me. He could have stepped out in faith and said, God, I'm going to trust you for this victory. I'm going to trust you for the victory. Not numbers, not people, not other military leaders. I'm going to trust you for the victory. And because of his lack of faith, they're still going to get victory. We're going to get there. But because of his lack of faith, the fame of taking down that oppressive general would not be his. He'd be part of the story. We still read his name today. But he's not the hero of the story. Besides God, obviously, being the hero of the story. So here's the victory that takes place in verse 11 through 16. We already know the game plan. But now here are the details that take place. Now Heber the Canaanite had left the other Canaanites, the descendants of Hoab, Moses' brother-in-law. Uh, Moses' brother-in-law. Uh, so that verse is just giving us some historical insight in case we don't know who the Kenites are. The Kenites are believers. They've drifted away from the faith a little bit. They kind of are on their own. They're not part of one of the 12 tribes. Uh, and they've been living in this land uh, for a long time, probably about 150 to maybe 200 years by this point. But they've kind of kept to themselves, but they kind of have relationships with the Israelites. These are sort of the type of people that sort of have a relationship with the church. They kind of go every once in a while. You recognize them, you say hi, they're family, but they're, they kind of keep to themselves. So they're an unknown quantity to the Israelites. They don't know for sure, are they going to be with us? Are they going to be against us? But at least the author of the book of Judges is giving us some 
um, historical background so we are not caught by surprise about what happens next. So, uh, Heber the Kenite who had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hoab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched a tent by the great tree in, this is the name, Za'anaim, near Kadesh. Again, north part of town, far north part of town. So, we're given a hint about this guy. He just kind of is all by himself, north side of town, has a small relationship with the Israelites, but pretty much is a, a loner with his family. Verse 12 then picks up the story of the victory. When, when they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abdomai, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herisheth, uh, Hagoyim um, to the Kishon River, all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. So he hears, Sisera, the king's general, King Jabin's general, hears about this insertion, this, these rebels who are starting to gather and get together on this high point, and he decides, I'm going to gather all my men, including all my heavy artillery and military units, and we're going to take them out. So he hears about it, and he goes forward. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Well, the answer to that needs to be, well, yes, he has. How has he gone ahead of him? He's planned it. He sees it. He orchestrates it. He puts every one of these pieces into place. He knows the rocks that these chariots are going to travel on. He knows all the events. He knows the clouds in the skies. He knows every detail. He has it taken care of. All he asks of us to do is go forward in faith and follow his word. Believe him. Even though I may not see it, believe him. Now, if you remember when we were in the book of Mark several years ago, Jesus and the Pharisees always had these kind of conversations where the Pharisees would come to him asking him for proof. Prove to me this. Prove to me that. Do miracles. And Jesus basically answered them every time and said, it doesn't matter if I do miracles. You still won't believe me. I sent prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament foretelling of my day. And you murdered them. You put them to death. You rejected them. You compromised. You refused to listen to them. God is sort of facing us with those same type of things here. Are you going to believe him? Or do you need him to prove and demonstrate time and time again, yes, Lord, you're really with me. Yes, Lord, you really love me. Yes, Lord, you really forgive me. And we're looking for all these reassurances, and the whole time we need to just be woken up to that fact, is he not with you? Has he not gone out before you? And the answer, of course, to Barak and to us, yes, he has. I just need to step out in faith and go forward. I need to take that step of faith. So, in verse 15, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and the army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. He was done. And verse 16 puts a nail on it. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hesreth, Hagarim. Oh my goodness, I've said that three different ways, three different times. You get it. Uh, we'll just call that place the HH. 
So they went from there to HH, which is uh, further, let me get this right, east of that whole northern section, so further east. And I don't even think, it's way north of the University Park area. Desolate land, but he pursued them all the way to that northeast part of Israel, way out there. Uh, so out there that they name things with funny names. Uh, and so Sisera's troop fell by the sword. Not a man was left. God truly did fulfill his word through the prophet Deborah that the Lord's going to give you victory. All you need to do is go forward. God will give you victory. All you need to do is step out in faith. God will give you victory. Just follow his word. Trust that he knows what he's doing when he asks you to step out. And that reminds me of that story of Peter, who was on that Sea of Galilee in that really rough weather, and Jesus had sent them across the sea, and he was staying and praying, and Jesus appears to them on the water, walking, as if nothing was going on. And the disciples are terrified. Is that a ghost walking? What is that? And they find out it's Jesus, and Peter says, well, I want to come to you. He says, come, walk. And that first step of Peter was so victorious. He took that step, and it was like solid ground. What an amazing rush of emotion, of confidence and faith he must have had at that moment. Until when? Until he realized, oh, it's, it's cold out here and windy and I'm walking on water, and that's really unnatural. What's happening? And he starts to lose faith. What happens? He sinks. Now, it wasn't Peter who was keeping himself afloat walking on water. It was God. Every step of the way, it was God planting his foot on what was liquid, now solid. But once Peter's eyes got off of God and that confidence in God and it got on to the problem surrounding him, his faith diminished and he began to sink. Christ beautifully, wonderfully stretches out his hand, saves him, brings him into the boat. Wonderful story and lesson about faith in Christ even when the things around you feel contrary to faith. Barak finally sees God's hand is amazingly right, that God was right. And I can imagine in that route of victory, and it doesn't tell us how long it took, could have taken an hour, could have taken a couple days. The text doesn't tell us. It was just an incredible battle that took place. And I can imagine in that moment of victory, seeing all of Israel's enemies being scattered and fleeing and being struck down. Barak could have been standing there going, wow, Deborah was right. God he is a God of victory for his people when they cry out to him. God does indeed bring victory. Why would I ever have doubted? I don't think he doubted from that moment forward that when God speaks through his people, when God gives his word, he can take it and believe it. He had proof. The proof he should have gone with was simply God speaking to them. Because for 20 years, God let them live in misery. But when God spoke, victory is yours, he should have said, yes, Lord, and followed. Without questioning God's motive or his plan. Yes, God, I'll follow. 
But what happens in verse 17 through 22 is the cool part of the story that should again be made into a movie, but it never has. It'd be amazing. Verse 17, Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, Jael uh, the wife of Herb, uh, Heber the Kenite. So remember the Kenite came in in verse 11, so now we know his wife is involved in this whole scenario. So Sisera fled on foot to Jael, and uh, Jael just simply means, as weird as it sounds, um, mountain goat. That's what her name means, and maybe that's why it's not a super popular name today. Uh, but it means mountain goat, someone who is sure-footed, the mountain goat. Well, she, that's where he ends up in the tent, um, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. So again, you don't know. What side of the fence is she on? They're pretty much Israelites, at least by name and history, but they certainly don't act like it because they keep to themselves and they make alliances with foreign kings. Now, I know why Heber made the alliance with Jabin. They won't pillage me, and they won't put me into slavery. I'll just pay my tribute every once in a while, and they will leave me alone and let me be by myself and live my own life. Sisera runs to her. Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered the tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I can imagine at that moment he's thinking, I found safe haven, and I found a spy who's going to take care of me. I am safe. He has to be amazingly tired. One, because he's running away from the battle. I have no idea how far he's running, but it's got to be quite a distance. He has emotional problems because his entire army just got wiped out in front of him. And now he's found safety, a safe house in his mind. Yeah, come on in. It's all going to be fine. Verse 19, I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, drink and covered him up. Uh, so instead of giving him water, she actually does this really incredible thing and gives him some milk. Now, it would have been warm milk. And what happens to milk when it gets warm? Well, it probably is yogurt, more of a yogurt type of drink. And that sort of has a, a physical effect on him. Not drunkenness, but it does sort of make him feel, oh, this would be a nice place for a little nap. And so, verse 20, Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael Heber's wife picked up a tent peg and hammered, and a hammer, and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Yeah, really. Yeah. I thought long and hard how to apply that to us today. And it went in some really weird Stephen King directions that we're not going to talk about. Everybody get the picture? Anyone who ever tells me the Old Testament is full of old, boring stuff needs to read the book of Judges. 
We got a sword stuck in the belly of a fat man the week before, and now we have a tent peg driven through the temples of a man who was sleeping, who was the commander of an army, done by a lady who's hiding him in a tent. You can't make this stuff up, but God has designed every part of it. He's gone forward in this. I don't think there's any real application to us from this. And if you remember last week, we talked about sometimes God reveals things in historical books without giving any moral judgment. He's saying this is a record of what happened. He doesn't give us a moral judgment on what happened. He tells us this is what happened. And it actually is a fulfillment of what Deborah the prophet had said before. A woman is going to gain victory and notoriety for killing Sesera, the king's commander. Not, not Barak, but Jael gets that victory. Just then in verse 22, Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. Oh, Barak's got to be incredibly excited. We finally got him. Uh, so he went in with her, and there lay Sisera in the tent, with a tent peg through his temple, and just in case we didn't get what happened, dead. He had to, at that moment, do a shout-out to God in thanksgiving. He probably was pierced to the heart with humility, knowing that he should have believed God from the very beginning. And if he ever had another moment where he had to step out in faith, I'm sure he took that step before the words got out of someone's mouth, follow God. He had seen God's handiwork right in front of him, time in and time again. Just so we know, verse 23 and 24 closes with telling us who really is the victor here. Verse 23 says, On that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the Israelites. It's God's hand that gains victory over the enemies. And at the hand of the Israelites, pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. But God was the actor. God was the author. God was the manipulator. God was the one who gained victory over Israel's enemies after they had fallen into complacency. And all of these details reminded me of a poem from a long time ago that had been turned into a hymn by William Cooper. And this is where we're going to leave us today. William Cooper had this incredible poem that I believe it was um, one of the Wesleys, John or Charles, that turned into a pretty amazing hymn. And it starts out, and I'm just going to read two verses, and it's Old English, so I'm going to stay true to the Old English, but I think we're going to be able to read through some of that Old English kind of feel. He says in this poem, God moves in mysterious ways, which is not a quote of Scripture. That quote never happens anywhere, but a lot of people kind of use it as a quote. Well, God moves in mysterious ways. Well, while he may, Scripture never tells us that. But he starts out the poem, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, 
but trust in him for grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. See, Cooper understood that there are times where God moves and acts and calls us, and we don't fully grasp it. We don't fully understand why, how, are you sure? And Cooper wanted to remind us in this poetic way that there are times we don't understand things. But know for sure that God's step is steady and sure. That there is no doubt in his step. There is no doubt in his words. There is no doubt in his commitment to us as his children. No doubt. You never have to doubt, does the Father love me? Does the Father hear my prayers? Does the Father care for me? Does the Father know best for me? He does. Every moment of every day of your life, he knows the best. And while he may not reveal all the details on how it's going to happen and how it's going to turn out and how it's going to feel and how it's going to affect my finances or my emotional state or my physical state, he doesn't answer every one of those questions. He doesn't have to. He's God. He doesn't have to answer a single one of our questions. Do we realize that? He does not owe us an answer to why this, why that in my life. In fact, when we begin to ask those type of questions, he reminds us in Romans chapter 9 with a very stark response. He says, Who are you, O man, to ask me what I do? And any time we're feeling boastful or prideful or, or I need a right to know why God is moving in my life this way, all we got to do is read the last few chapters of the book of Job in which he tells Job, all right, let's have this man-to-man -man conversation. Where were you when I put the stars in their places? Where are you when I raised the mountains and lowered the seas? Where were you when I breathed life into animals? Where were you when I put blood coursing through your veins? Where were you when I made plants rise from the soil? Where were you when I put boundaries on the sea? Where were you when I was doing all this? And you know what Job's response was? He zipped it. He zipped it. And he followed God from that day forward with fervency. As the band comes up, I want to just read in closing uh, this portion from Romans 11. Because Paul talks about this very thing and puts it in terms that we can easily understand. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. The paths beyond tracing out. He can't figure it out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should repay them. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Sometimes our only response can be, yes, Lord, even though I do not understand all the details, if you've told me to do, then I'll do. Let's pray. Father, it is encouraging to see you fulfill your great work in your people through very, very odd circumstances, a tent peg. How amazing you are at delivering your people from oppression, from sin, and from their own weariness. 
Father, help us to be better than Barak and step out in faith immediately, trusting you in all things. For, Father, you do know things and act in ways that are far beyond our understanding. And that is okay. We will still follow you, praise you, and obey you. Give us the courage and strength to be brave with our faith. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and sing. Jesus, your name is power, breath and living. 
keep that song in our heart every day, two things are going to happen. One, we will fight against complacency. And secondly, you will have the courage to be brave and step out in faith when God calls you to serve Him and honor Him. That is a glorious thing to keep in our mind. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We will be singing that song for eternity. It is our anthem of heaven. And it can be our anthem here today. As you leave today, tell someone that God loves them and enjoy this beautiful weekend. Until tomorrow, next week in your place. To me, it's tomorrow. Uh, have a great week. God bless everyone. Bye. <laughs>